Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Welcome to Life Over Coffee. I am Rick Thomas, and I'm very glad that you are here. I want to talk about one of the most counterintuitive messages for anyone to accept, and that is an individual's inherent badness. Most people think poorly about themselves, but they will not accept that overcoming what's wrong with them is actually affirming those negative thoughts. In this context, thinking poorly about yourself is the path to freedom. It is the right path to wholeness. I know that is counterintuitive, and that's why so many people would reject these ideas. But the Bible's declaration is that we are Here it comes, Romans 3.12, we are worthless. We are not good people. Now, the culture says you are somebody. They believe that people are inherently good. The Bible says we're not that special. Now, I'm not talking about self-worth that flows from the Imago Dei. I realize that there is worth because of the painter. Rembrandt makes a fabulous painting, and there's value in the painting because Rembrandt painted it. Well, we have self-worth, too. That worth is found in the Imago Dei. That's not what I'm talking about. It is a futile belief system that says that we are good people outside of Christ, alien righteousness. It is just not true. Let me illustrate with two of my friends, Biff and Mabel. I will start with Biff first. He's depressed. He's discouraged. And he keeps saying, quote, I'm not good enough. I wish I were a better person. I want to be a good person, end quote. Over and over again, like a yoga mantra, I am not good enough. I wish I were good, a good person. I am so unworthy. I have done so many horrible things. How could Christ love me? Do you hear what he is saying? Do you see the problem with his theology and how he practicalizes it? What if we put his self-flagellating statements through a theological filter? Perhaps it would sound like this. I am a terrible person. I am so bad that God cannot possibly love me. If I were not so bad, maybe God would love me. I need to be a better person. I need to make myself more presentable than I am so God will like me. What Biff is explaining, now he's explaining it unwittingly, is his functional theology. Ironically, he has an intellectual theology that says, well, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is what he knows. This is what he understands. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, for Biff, that Ephesians text, it's what he knows. It's informational, and there is a world of difference between informational knowledge and transformative knowledge. Biff is not believing this practically, where it really matters most in his life. What he understands is not transformational. That's why he will argue with you if you try to bring these thoughts to him, because he will say, oh, I I do uh, know that for by grace I am saved and not of works. But in reality, when his boots hit the ground, his functional theology is something different from what he knows in his head. It is challenging sometimes for people to distinguish between what they know 
Bible truth and what they are authentically practicing. They're practical, or maybe you could say they're functional theology. Let me share an encounter I had with my friend uh, Mabel. I was talking with Mabel. It's not a real name, obviously, but she's a drug addict. She tried her best to convince me that she was a good person. She said the quiet part aloud, I am a good person. Mabel hoped that when we ended our conversation, I would walk away thinking she was a good person. People like Mabel are needy. They need others to agree with their self-imposed high estimation of themselves. Their high self-esteem demands our obedience. To maintain her delusion, she needs me to agree with her. I mean, it could sound something like this if Mabel were talking and, and really was clued in to what she was actually thinking and believing. She would say something like, please love me the way I love me so I can keep this love that I have for myself. If you love me, I will feel good about myself. If you don't love me, I will feel bad about myself. I need you to love me. Will you love me? If you don't, you will force me to find someone else to love me because I need people to love me, for me to feel good about myself. Now, I chose not to tell Mabel what I was thinking at that moment. We were standing in our front yard, and by the way, she was high on drugs at the moment. And it was not appropriate or helpful for me to teach her sound theology in that context under her condition. And also, especially the doctrines of humanity, sin, and salvation. She was not ready to receive the testimony of Scripture. Here's the testimony of Scripture. Paul said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Or maybe where Paul said in another place in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become, here it comes again, worthless. No one does good, not even one. Mabel doesn't want to wrestle with the realities of her wretchedness. In her mind, she wants to think of herself as better than what the testimony of Scripture says she is and what Christians throughout church history have believed and taught. If only she could convince me of her goodness, things would be okay. She would feel better about herself. If I accepted her perceived goodness, it would doubly affirm her delusional, I'm okay, you're okay fixation. Her worldview is the damnable, damnableness of our culture's self-esteem teaching. The culture teaches nobody can be wrong. Everybody should feel good about themselves and nobody should lose. Hey, loser, you get a trophy too. They believe negative waves damage our self-esteem. The Bible appeals to us to think of ourselves less which is the only way to be truly free. Both Biff and Mabel do not want to think biblically. They do not want to be unworthy. Biff is a Christian. Mabel is not. But they both struggle similarly 
They are self-righteous. Self-righteousness is a greater than, better than attitude, and they're drowning in self-righteousness, or they are hyper-elevated into self-righteousness. For them to change, it will be vital for them to accept that they are wretchedly unworthy of God's favor. There's no other way for them to receive his unearned, unmerited grace. Those who are well, Jesus said, have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners in Mark 2.17. Self-esteem entangles their thinking. They are not as good as they try to deceive themselves and others into believing. Have you ever expected to get a good grade, only to get a bad one? Well, in a sense, that is what Biff and Mabel fear. They so badly want a good grade. They want an excellent grade, but they keep failing. And their unwillingness to embrace the reality of their inability, it distresses them. They just can't think that way. They distance themselves from the testimony of God's Word while developing a practical theology that holds them to a higher standing than what the Bible declares. They persist in convincing themselves of their higher-grade worthiness, though the reality of their lives is not cooperating with what they try to gaslight themselves into believing. Their strategy is a trap that somebody will have to walk them through if they hope to be free from themselves and from needing others, to always affirm them, always love them, always respect them, always accept them. It won't be easy to help them. I mean, when Biff sees who he is, discouragement settles into his mind. Mabel is similar. When she surveys the landscape of her life, she becomes discouraged too. Her response as she wallows in the grips of depression is drugs. Her pick-me-up effort to elevate herself eventually drives her soul into despair. Because Biff is a Christian, he won't turn to such ungodly escapes as drugs, but he puts himself through cycles of self-pity and despair. I mean, in the end, both of them have an addiction. One is addicted to illegal drugs, and the other is addicted to a delusional high view of himself. Neither of them can lift themselves by their bootstraps so that they, so they turn to drugs, to the drugs of their choice. Biff and Mabel must come to terms with their unworthiness before God. They are putrid through and through, like you and like me. They are the worst of the worst. They are the lowest of the low. Now, when you hear such things as this, does your mind begin to think about the victory you have in Christ or how horrible and damaging that kind of thinking is? The gospel-centered person has ears to hear and quickly indexes forward to his victory in Christ. He does not see a commentary about his unworthiness as depressing, but as an essential, a necessary step in getting to Christ. There is a sequence here. You will never recognize your need for Christ if you don't first recognize your unworthiness. The self-righteous person will disdain being unworthy while touting their strengths and accolades. 
here's our strengths and accolades and what they mean to Isaiah in 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a putrid garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. For Biff and Mabel, the biblical path upward is not to climb out of their total depravity by their power. They must shout, Amen, I am a terrible person, and I cannot fix myself. Ezekiel, similar to Isaiah, he said it this way, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood. Without question, we were pitifully guilty before the Lord. We were standing in God's courtroom, condemned, awaiting sentencing. Undoubtedly, we were responsible for the greatest crime ever committed. We have sinned against God. The evidence was irrefutable. We stopped our mouths, and there was not a thing we could do to extricate ourselves from the accusation of evil that was against us. And though we wanted to think better about ourselves, to feel better about ourselves, there was no argument we could proffer. God, the prosecuting attorney, made the evidence plain, convincing, and beyond any shadow of a doubt. We were guilty before our Maker, and we were at His mercy. Self-salvation was not an option. And then we read this beautiful passage in Romans. Paul said this, But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from our effort, apart from our works. The righteousness of God through faith, believing in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I mean, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 21 through 24. And in the depths of our despair and unworthiness, we learned about the most incredible news ever told. The gospel story came into view. We saw Calvary. There is only one answer for unworthy people. Embrace the worthiness of another. The sick and helpless cry out to the physician. Biff is a believer who needs to reacquaint himself with the gospel that he says he believes. He needs to understand what the doctrine of justification means practically. God the judge slammed the gavel down and said, not guilty. That was it. Jesus finished it all. Biff was legally declared not guilty by the judge of the universe when God saved him. He was free when Christ took his righteousness and gave him his Christ righteousness. There was nothing else for Biff to do, and there never will be anything else for him to do. God Almighty declared him innocent, not because he conjured up some merit that won God over to his side. To the contrary, Christ won the Father over through his sacrificial death on Biff's behalf. The works of Christ persuaded the Father to accept Biff as his dear son. And so he needs to reacquaint and recalibrate his mind to the gospel. 
Now, Mabel can do that too. But first, she needs her initial acquaintance with the gospel in a salvific way. She needs to be born again. She needs to hear and embrace the good news about the Savior's atoning death. She needs to believe his death was for her. And she can only be a good person. She can only be the good person she deceives herself to be through Christ alone. <clears throat> through Christ alone. She needs to stop the deception, step out of the delusion, and walk into the reality that Christ will make you whole. Christ will make you righteous. Christ will save your soul. Both Biff and Mabel, they have flipped justification and sanctification in their thinking and practice. Now, what I mean by that is that justification and sanctification are part of the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. There is a linkage in our salvation. Now, there are several links in the salvific chain, but I'm just going to mention two of those, and that is justification and sanctification, and that is the order. We have to have them this way. Justification always precedes sanctification, and justification is not dependent on sanctification, meaning if I work hard enough, if I keep myself sanctified, if I do all the right things, then I will be justified. Just for clarity, let me say it again. Justification always precedes sanctification, and justification is never dependent on sanctification. But according to Biff's and Mabel's practical theology, they believe that sanctification precedes justification. Their sanctification, their good works, their behaviors, their actions, the words that they say, the things that they do, that makes them right with God and before other people. You see what can happen when you flip justification and sanctification around? Where sanctification is first, then justification can only happen if we work hard enough. And if they can work enough or do the right things, they will be acceptable in their mind or justified to use the legal theological forensic term. They feel better about themselves through their effort requiring a daily ritual of proving acceptability. Now, again, Biff will argue with you because he's a Christian, and he knows Ephesians 2, 8, 9, forwards and backwards. He learned it in the Bible drill, and when they call out 2, 8, 9, he's up first shouting it to the rafters. And that's where you will have to carefully walk him through how he functionally practices his theology. It's what I was saying earlier. There is informational theology, which we must have, we must know, but there is practical theology, our functional theology, what it looks like boots on the ground, what it looks like in our lives. Biff intellectually understands, for by grace you have been saved, but functionally, the way he practices his theology, it is contrary to what he knows intellectually. He embraces a form of legalism. A person who feels good about himself because of what he does. Our joy, our feel-good primarily comes not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us, to us, in us. The goal would be to help him see three things. Number one, his ongoing self-pity about his badness is wrong-headed. It is proper to have a good view of yourself that you are worthless. 
But if you wallow in worthlessness, then that is wrong-headed because it's going to lead you to some bad places like self-pity. And Biff lives in cycles of self-pity. When he does good, he is cresting and doing well. And then when he is not doing good, well, he is in the depths of self-pity, and so he has to do good again. And so the first thing I would want him to see is that his ongoing self-pity about his badness is wrong-headed. He is stuck on himself. Number two, he must accept his badness to see his genuine need for the one who is perfectly good. And then number three, once he repents from his self-imposed righteousness or repents of his high self-esteem, then he will be able to receive God's unearned mercy. Paul said it this way, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost, period, but he didn't stop there. In verse 16 of 1 Timothy 1, he begins this way, but I received mercy. You see, there's two parts there that is essential to our understanding of how to live uh, properly the Christian life. Some people believe if you talk about your badness all the time, then you are sin-centered and there is no grace in your life. I agree if you talk about your badness all the time, you are sin-centered. And strictly sin-centeredness mocks Calvary because there is more to the story as Paul was laying out in 1 Timothy 1. Paul had no qualms about announcing to the world at the end of his life that he was the chief of sinners. But he did not fixate on his badness. Yeah, he was the worst of the worst. He was bad to the bone. I mean, according to his perspective, I think I could argue with him. But he also tells us that God showed mercy to him. There is a hinge there. And if we want to be balanced, we have to be appropriately embracing both sides of the scales. I am the worst of the worst, the foremost, chiefest of sinner. But God had mercy, and he has saved me. Jerry Bridges said it this way, and I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't have the exact quote, but it goes something like this. A diamond is most magnificent when placed against a black velvet backdrop. Get the picture fixed in your mind, and you will see a picture of what it looks like to be a Christian. We see the blackness and the darkness of our lives. We are worthless, but we see that diamond against that black backdrop, and we are jumping off the velvet. We are sparkling, shining. Our eyes are drawn to the treasure in the jar of clay. And it's true. The more you are aware of your badness, and hopeless ability to repair your wretchedness, the more you will be strengthened by the grace of God. This is an important truth, not just for the reasons that I have been stating, but it also affects our gratitude. One of the reasons that people aren't grateful is because they don't realize what God did, how dark their life was, what total depravity is, and they don't understand what it means to have Christ's alien righteousness. The larger the gap is in your thinking between what you were and who you are now, assuming you're a Christian, the wider that gap, the more gratitude that you're going to have. 
Lucia and I, my wife, we have talked about this for years now. Because she didn't live a horrible life, she ripped off some lifesavers when she was five or seven years old. Don't tell anyone that. It's a heinous sin. But that was basically the, the beginning and the end of her sin list. Uh, she did fail the skirt test at Bob Jones University, where she graduated from, a wonderful degree that she received. But they put her on the concrete, and her skirt did not reach the concrete. It didn't go below her knees. Now, they're not like that anymore. They have become so liberal. But she failed the skirt test and ripped off some lifesavers, and that was it. Horrible, wretched, heinous. Well, when she became a Christian, this is true. Uh, those two sins are true as well. But when she became a Christian, she thought that God got a pretty good deal because she didn't understand how wretched she really was. And some people can fall into that trap. My sin list is not as long as your sin list. Therefore, I am a better person. And we create a stratification, the haves and the have-nots, the little sinners and the big sinners. No, that's not how that works. All ground is level at the cross. All sinners are the same. Total depravity means total total depravity. Everybody is the same that way. It doesn't mean that you have sinned as much as you can, but you have the ability to sin more than you ever imagined. We are totally depraved. And so the more we realize, or the blacker that velvet cloth gets in our minds, the shinier that diamond is going to be, and the more gratitude we're going to have. If you're interacting with a person that, doesn't have a lot of gratitude, they have probably forgotten where they came from, or maybe they don't even know at all. The more you are aware of your badness and hopeless ability to repair your wretchedness, the more you will be strengthened by the grace of God. If you are unwilling to accept the testimony of Scripture regarding your black velvet, velvet cloth, regarding your badness, your worthlessness, then you will limit you will truncate the powerful grace that God offers to humble, broken, unworthy people. Knowing you're bad is the beginning of being good. And if we try to pretend that link in the chain is not there, if we try to obscure it or create a delusional world thinking I am okay and you're okay, if we're going to embrace the self-esteem movement always having a, a high uh, attitude, good attitude, positive mental attitude about ourselves, uh, then we will never come to the place. We'll never descend to the place of recognizing who we are. An unclean thing, as Isaiah said, worthless, as Paul said, wallowing in our blood, as Ezekiel said. No, that is the beginning of success. That is the beginning of victory. That is the beginning of being made complete. Knowing, you're knowing you are bad, is the beginning of being good. Now, this is part of a book that I've, I have called Loving Me, The Hidden Agenda of Self-Esteem. And so this is one of the chapters that I just shared with you. And if you would like to have it, please go to our digital store and you can get it. And by the way, while you're there, get all of our digital books. If you don't have them, then shame on you. They're free. There's no catch whatsoever. Get our books. Loving Me, The Hidden Agenda of Self-Esteem. It needs to be heard. It needs to be shouted from the housetops. In this culture in which we live, we are enamored with our ourselves, and we are so fragile, so sensitive, we are so insecure. 
that we can be blown apart if we just if we don't use the proper pronouns. Uh, we are so easily offended. This is a message for our culture. We need Christ, and we need to detach ourselves from ourselves. But the counterintuitive path is to descend off of our perches, off of our high self-esteem, and recognize uh, that we are hopeless without God. And for those who do, Christ came for you, the sick, the broken, the lame. Let me ask you a few questions, and I'll wrap up. Number one, do you understand and embrace your badness? Now, that's a close-ended question, and all biblical counselors know that you don't ask those questions. You ask open-ended questions, and so let me follow up with saying, please explain your answer. Do you understand and embrace your badness? Now, I would encourage you to share this chapter from Loving Me, The Hidden Agenda of Self-Esteem, with a friend. Again, this chapter, Knowing You're Bad, is the beginning of being good. It is essential that people understand what I'm saying here, but I'm asking you specifically, do you understand and embrace your badness? But as you help others, you want them to get to that place too. Number two, does your awareness of yourself tempt you to present yourself as good? You see, that's what Bill and Mabel were doing or trying to do. I wasn't buying what they were selling. But see, we have this innate awareness that we're not good people. That's why I mean, we feel this sense of shame, this internal awkwardness of the soul. We know there's something wrong with us, and that's why we grab for straws. That's why we put water in cisterns that do not hold water. We have this self-awareness. But rather than turning to Christ, we will turn to our own good deeds. We will try to personify ourselves into the public space. We live a performative life, hoping that people will accept us. Does your awareness of yourself tempt you to present yourself as good? Or does it propel you to accept the righteousness of Christ alone? Please explain. Number three, when you do bad things, are you tempted to balance the scales by doing good things? People who do that typically have justification and sanctification flipped. I do bad things. Therefore, I'm not justified. I'm not saved. And so they try to balance the scales. Would you please explain your answer on that one? And then number four, when you do bad things, do you run to the only good person who can make it right? Running to Christ is that person. If you do not, why not? And then finally, number five, did you know your good works do not make you any more saved? And your evil works do not make you any less saved. Now, I would encourage you with this question is that you share your response with a friend. Y'all talk it out. Have a conversation for transformation. This would be an awesome conversation to have. And you may find that some people will be triggered by the very things that I am saying. That's where they are theologically. Some of them may even be Christians who have an intellectual theology but not a functional and practical one like Biff. And so you, won't you want to help them realize knowing you're bad is the beginning of being good. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.